The sea's only gifts are harsh blows. And occasionally the chance to feel strong. Now, I don't know much about the sea, but I do know that that's the way it is here. And I also know how important it is in life, not necessarily to be strong, but to feel strong. To measure yourself at least once. To find yourself at least once in the most ancient of human conditions. Facing the blind, deaf stone alone, with nothing to help you but your hands in your own head. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. All right, back again with another hiatus over with. We got the Thriving in Dystopia crew. I'm... As always, uh, one of your two hosts, Dave Peachtree, and excited to be here today, Bob. Um, this is kind of a dual episode. We uh, wanted to record over Thanksgiving break, and today we sit on the day before Thanksgiving, and um, I kind of came up with this podcast because it is the end of one of my um, classes at grad school, and so this podcast is going to have a lot of uh, information about a, a man named Robin Dranith. Ra- sorry, how do I say it? Rab- Robin Dranith um, Lagore. And it's Tugor. Gonna, what's that? Tugor. Tugor, right. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, there you go, Bob. And then we're also going to be having a discussion about starting a school and I brought you on and this just feels like a perfect podcast for us. One, because we're podcasters, but two, because you have often dreamt about starting your own um, school for education. So do you want to introduce yourself a little bit, Bob? Yeah, I think this is going to be a really exciting podcast, really interesting topic and love to see where we go. I'm, I'm Bob Maisler. I am Dave's brother. I'm a teacher, instructor, lecturer at UC Santa Cruz and CSUMB in both their psych departments and also at John Lewis College at UCSC, which is uh, focused on social justice topics and also active in the community at various locations, Sabrosa, um, you know, pop-up action strikes, um, when grad students are on strike, that's what's happening at our university right now. Um, and yeah, I'm a dreamer, dreamer and schemer. I have, uh, for a long time in conversations with Dave and others have been thinking about how to start a school that, um, is just a different model. We need a different model of education than what we've seen before. So this this episode really is going to, I'm really excited to see where we go here. Yeah. And 
it will be a little clunky. It's a little bit different than our typical thriving in dystopia podcast, but uh, also it never works best when I'm the expert, but today I'm the expert and there's some good information. I think we'll just jump right on into it if that's okay, Bob. Yeah, go for it. So I guess the start of this podcast is going to be a lot of information out, um, just sort of explaining who Tagore is and... Um, the assignment was to pick a philosopher that we've studied over the course of the year. And I was just to give a little information that we, some of my favorites were bell hooks and Pablo Freire. So you might hear a little bit about them as we go. Um, they're all certainly related as all educational philosophers have some relation to each other. Um, and yeah, I got, for me, like on a personal level, I feel like those two, uh, Hooks and Frary, sort of like shaped me. And they, like, long before I was even an educator, I was shaped by those two. So it felt like that's where I was going to head because I felt like I had a lot more to say. But then um, the readings for class this week, we learned about. Tagore and he just really spoke to me and it's also interesting because like in like as an educator almost everybody knows who John Dewey is right and then there's also like a lot of other famous names going all the way back to Aristotle but also like Jane Addams and folks like that um but I've never heard of this guy and Tagore before this week and I think that that has a lot to do with the Western centric thinking that we live in. And it is just like a product of where we are, right? Like everyone knows who Waldorf is or Maria Montessori, all these people. But I don't think that this, like, I don't think Tagore is too dissimilar. And I guess I'm also curious, Bob, did you learn, did you um, do any research on him before coming into the podcast? I just, did a little bit of research via the interwebs, especially Wikipedia. And I also did not know who this person was, but very impressed after my brief research. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're going to start off with sort of the historical context of Tagore, where he was born into. And I, I guess I'll have a few questions. He's um, Bengali. So he's from the eastern part of India, sort of like um, Bengal uh, butts up against Bangladesh. Does that, is that right, Bob? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So then, and the big city in Bengal is uh, Calcutta, which is like at the heart of like where the British Empire imperialism was. And if I'm not mistaken, that's where Gandhi was born as well. Does, is that true? Maybe I I'm not totally sure. Um, but um, so he's born in the late 1800s and uh, he like this, the whole like political movement at the time is this movement called Swadeshi. And it's this idea of like self-governing um, for India. And it's like this push to get the British Empire out of India and. It, I, I feel like Tagore takes an interesting stance where he's not, he's not either, he doesn't, he's not for imperialism and he's also not for the Swadeshi movement. So he's kind of like neutral, which I feel like 
I, I was a little bit surprised by that, um, you know, because he, one of his quotes is that, um, or maybe not quote, but this idea that like we, the India that they're living in, that he's like a part, a product of is an India that he feels like needs a lot of healing. And that's sort of like the British empire was able to like take over India because it wasn't like strong enough. And it's, it's like an interesting moment of time for him to not take a like strong stance against the empire or against the Swadeshi movement. So I feel like, especially a little more historical context too, is that he is a, like a poet first more than anything like that. He won the Nobel prize in poetry and he like was writing poems at the age of eight and coming out really strong um, with all of his like art and creative energies. So, and I feel like a lot of art is fueled by either. Yeah. Typically from some like political unrest and feeling towards that. But I would say that he's in a lot of ways in opposition to like, uh, the Swadeshi movement, which is like the Gandhi movement. Um, yeah. Is, and does that feel all right with what you know about, uh, Indian history, Bum? That feels like I'm no expert by any means, but it feels like that. Yeah. I would just say that there's like so many different perspectives, it like indigenous Indian perspectives on what to do about British colonialism. And I know we we often learn like Gandhi and that's it. But I know from my research on the diversity of tactics perspective of like anti-imperial struggles that I know that India had like a lot of different tactics. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that he, w- he wouldn't fit like cleanly anywhere. Yeah, right. The first quote I wanted to share is that he urging Indians to accept um, to accept that there can be no question of blind revolution, but of steady and purposeful education. So I think that he saw rather than just like, I, I guess I feel like blind revolution feels like, what are we even building? Like he wants to see the the end game before jumping in. And I feel like he focused much of his energy, like all of his energy towards building this, um, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce it, but Santiniketan, Santiniketan, um, which is like his whole educational system, his whole like belief system. Um, and he's like pushing all this energy towards that as opposed to just trying to like um, deconstruct the imperialist empire. Um, he's trying to build something new. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And everything about him and his like life is so utopian, like just for who he is, he was like, he's, he's like born into the aristocracy, right? So he's rich. He's the, I think he's the 14th of 14 kids. He's the last kid born of his family, you know? And he lives on this like huge private estate in Bengal that's like massive and utopian and like perfect. And I feel like that context is like pretty important. Um, 
his like family educated him outside of the the typical public education system or even private education system. He just like lived at home and he was like educated by aunts and uncles and older brothers and sisters and parents. And it's like this very much like, uh, I guess like utopian ideal where you can just like, I feel like my, the imagery that I had about researching this guy was just like, Oh man, I can just like see this like, perfect little ponds that he'd sit and like these like you know mango trees that he'd sit underneath as he's like thinking about the world right um and i guess i'm gonna like so that's like who he is as a person and he like you know at age eight he gets his first paper published or his first poem published and he like thinks about his childhood he reflects on it and he's like this is the what I want to build, right? So this uh, Santa Neken Ketan, um, his like schooling system that he builds, he builds a school at his parents' property. And um, it's this idea that's like, it's communal living. It's this like guru style. So like, it's the idea that there's like this person in charge, this like great guru that's sitting there that's like helping direct things, but not like, not like being like, this is like, you have to make it to class on time. Um, and one of the biggest things I want to hit on too, is that he is like so influenced by nature and the forest school idea, what's called uh, Tapo Ban is like this very spiritual connected to the earth way of like learning. And I feel like if you want to look at a typical day, it's, you know, you wake up and there's like meditation. There's like this awaiting for getting ready for the day. There's this huge creative outpouring of art, whether it's plays or dramas or dancing or poetry. Um, then there's like so much time in the day for like play. So like games and the, with the, you know, some type of game games and playing with each other. Um, nature walks are like a huge part of the curriculum. And I feel like if you, if I really want to paint the image, it's like this idea of like children sitting on mats under trees and as opposed to like the sitting in chairs in class classrooms. Right. And I feel like the standard classroom was like this dictator and order that's sitting in front of the classroom on this lecture stage. That's just like spouting information out and uh, he very much like is opposed to that. Um, the second quote I want to share from him is that he says, one of the seminal lessons children can learn in nature is improvisational play without the ready-made. So he's like very much wanting to bring nature into like the mind frame. I, I feel like so much of like what we think of as um, educators is like, this is like, We'll give them this problem. And then once they're able to solve this problem, they can do the next thing. But I feel like that's just not how the natural world really works. And we are in the beauty of like the nature classroom is that you're the problems that get posed are like, you don't know what they're going to be and it'll keep. So it like develops the brain in that, that way. Um, and Oh man, I really like this idea that class schedules shift because of weather, 
which feels like so in tune with something that I need. I feel like as we enter nature and, or sorry, enter winter, um, I'm like, I've, I have so much less energy and I feel like I just kind of, there's like cold and dark days and I feel like we're still expected to be the same person that we always are. But I love the idea that the weather can like shift what the class should be so like learning is super flexible it's simple and it's always um puts the child first which is hugely revolutionary at the time right um even like when our mom was born i feel like that it wasn't like a child first type of education so um and yeah i also you know typically think about what the teacher's role is being a teacher and um he sort of describes the teacher as someone that thinks clearly, feels nobly, acts rightly, and is the moral compass of the school. Teachers teach with a love of the subject, and the value was for inspiration and not qualification. So, um, yeah, it also puts teachers first, too, which is not always the case. And rather than – he does stress the idea that, like, teachers are there to serve the students, but um, – I think it's also, you know, he was, would always encourage teachers to follow their own like creative paths and like get those needs met, which is not always the case. And then students sort of like being involved with like the teacher's passion and following that passion. Uh, And I'll share my third quote that he has. It's uh, we rob the children of the earth in order to teach him geography. We rob the student of language in order to teach him grammar. And the child's hunger is for epic. And he is when we, but he is simply supplied with facts and dates. And I feel like that just sort of is at the heart of who he is as an educator. Um, and I'm going to fast forward a lot all the way up until like sort of why this guy speaks, why um, Tagore speaks to me. And I feel like we are in this I, this like renaissance of like the forest classroom or nature-based education. And I first got turned on to this through my wife, who was an outdoor educator. And she read this book called Last Child in the Woods by Richard Louvre. And he, um, yeah, and it's a book that I read as well. And he talks a lot about this idea of nature deficit disorder, which is like, if you think about the context where we live today, we're like very far removed from nature. And um, this, like as an educator, I feel like none of my standards, like the Colorado standards, none of them are like, you need to take the kids outside. I could, like a kid could go K through 12 and not be able to identify what a pine cone is. Or they could go K two through twelve and never have to step foot outside, which I understand that. But I also feel like there is a that's like a huge, uh, just a huge deficit for the world we're living in. And we, yes, technology is important, and this idea of like being able to do the math and science and um, reading and all those things. But I feel like so much of what ails our society and us as humans like is just not having a connection to the natural world or the world we live in and um you know in his book richard louv says like a sedentary life is one of the top leading causes of death in the united states and i like it's not just like the leading cause of death but it's also like all these like obesity issues are caused by not having a nature a connection to nature 
Um, it's just like this disconnection that we have from each other comes from that stem too, right? And in his book, Louv talks about how when we like roll all the way back in time when he's like reflected on his childhood growing up and in suburbia where he was able to like be outside and go catch crawdads and um, be with be with his family and friends and just like adults spent more time outside kids spent more time playing around outside and we're just like becoming farther and farther disconnected to that um and the final like piece to all this is sort of where i came across all this is a guy named joseph cornell he wrote a book um called sharing nature with um and it's nature awareness activities for all ages he talks about this idea of like flow learning which is very much in line with who you and i are as people bob we it's this idea of like walking and talking we we used to call it walk and squawks because we'd get out there and you know you get the body moving and you just start grooving with each other and this idea of like how when we would have like I feel like a lot of our like mind frames and our like becoming politically aware and developing a critical consciousness over the years has just been so much about us having these walks in nature or like just getting out and like, let's walk from our house to like downtown Boulder. And we would go on these long walks and it was just like this beautiful moment for us to share with each other, like, um, like our political ideas and it like totally grew us as people. So I feel like flow learning is a really awesome for us. And it, it talks about it in four steps, right? First, you awaken enthusiasm, you focus intention second, and then you offer direct experience third, and then you share inspiration. And I feel like this is at the heart of where Tagore was too, just being outside in nature and where, what connection is going to happen because you're not inside like a classroom or like trying to have a conversation while cooking dinner or just sharing space. And um, we've also remarked about that in the pandemic times, you and I, how like it's hard for us to share space across the country with each other. And we want, you know, just like being able to share space is so critical, but I feel like there's one thing to share space and there's another thing to be like connecting with nature at the same time. Um, yeah, so that kind of wraps up all my information out, Bob, and I know that I just did a lot of talking and my intention was to sort of ask you, um, like, what are, like, what are your three big main takeaways or things that you might, and maybe there's not three, but like, um, this idea of like, what is something that you, and also I, I do want to hear about like. Because I know your school that you want to start is not necessarily nature-based, but um, I kind of want to advocate because it's like against um, the norm, the public school norm of being stuck in the classroom all day. I just wanted to sort of do some advocation for that and see if what's sparking for you. Nice. Thank you, Dave. Uh, that was super interesting. And Love the way you went through some of Tagore's life and philosophy and how it kind of has resonance in some of the other um, educators that you've come across. Yeah, mm -hmm. I would say um, 
I think the first part that's worth thinking about is Tagore as a poet. Poet, like mm-hmm. I think you're right. Like that, probably first and foremost, Tagore would identify as a poet. Um, and so that's really important to think about, like poetry as a really strong component of education and that I think flows nicely into the other aspects that you talked about. And I think poetry is considered very optional in our current system. And yeah, I've come to poetry more and more over the years, even so much as in my research, there's a style of research that encourages the research analyst to uh, create these poems out of interview transcripts. Um, it's really interesting. So, hmm. and it's like, you, you, you tell this stuff to other social scientists and they look at you like you're out of your gourd or something like that. So yeah, yeah I love this emphasis on poetry and that's a take home message. Do you do, do and you maybe the other- poetry into your teaching at all? Um, I, I, or I incorporate that effort. method. Mm-hmm. In, th- that type of method of poetry, research poetry into my qualitative method research class. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been, it's, it's hard because I get in this like mode of thinking like, what are the, what are the articles that they need for this topic, you know, and usually poetry doesn't usually even cr- creep into my m- mind. I'm thinking about like book chapters and journal articles. So Right. This is a nice reminder to get back to poetry. I think that's really important. Uh, I do try to get Audre Lorde into as many of my classes as possible. Mm. Um, who's the like wonderful black feminist um, poet laureate. Uh, I, think, I think of New York State. Um, she identified as a warrior poet, which is something that we like to think of ourselves as as well. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, that 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 is one thing. I think the other big thing is like how did you call it? like nature education, nature um or open air education? Yeah, I think we should sort of focus on the idea of the forest school maybe. Forest school. There it is. Yeah, I like that. Um because that is like the a movement that's happening in the US. Um, like, you know, Julie worked at a forest preschool in Burlington for a little while. And that's also that the word, I can't remember it in, I'll find it real quick, but that is like, goes back to the roots of India. It's the Tapoban or forest school, which of ancient India, India. And he sets out to develop a small alternative learning center. So, um, it's like an indigenous model, the Tapoban. Nice. Anyway, yeah, that's, cool. that's, that's really important and really interesting. I love that. I think the part that I was most connecting with is it reminds me of a book called Emergent Strategy by Adrian Marie Brown. Do you know that book? Uh, no. Uh, tell me more. AK Press? Um, Yeah, I think it is AK Press. Yeah, it's the idea is that social movements, if they try to predict and and plan and try to control 
the way things are going to go, that's just never going to work. Um, but hmm. if they can listen to what can emerge, this like emergence of the possibilities of when people get together or when people are in the world, um, that is going to be a much more fruitful way to interact with social movements and, and just in the world in general. And part of that is biomimicry. And so the author is like always using these metaphors Mm -hmm. of the natural world. Um, And I mean, like, for example, she loves mycelium and she thinks like, you know, if we think of revolutionary potential, we need to think of mushrooms, you know, because, you know, a mushroom will pop up here and there like, oh, here's a rally. Here's a like uprising. But actually, most of the mushroom is underground and Mm. um and they're interconnected underground and that's kind of actually how social movements work. So if we, if we lose a battle over here, you know, actually like, let's not, let's not feel like we lost the war. We still have the underground. So that's, that's part of it. Um, This biomimicry, if we can like both understand nature, be more in tune with nature, it's going to help us in our social movements and education. So I think it leads to what you were talking about of like, things could just free flow where they will like that. That's the idea of emergence. And instead of like trying to get to like this particular endpoint in a class, like you have to get to this place where you can take the final and you can get everything right on the final. Hmm. Um, No, like why don't we like get out there in the world, spark something, see see which way we go. We we have no idea which way this is going to go. So we, we couldn't possibly design a final, you know, because we don't know where we're going. Yeah, right. Rather than having everything like pre-mapped out for what a fourth grader needs to know by the end of the year, like what standards do they have to hit? Can they become, what do they need to master? What do they need to be introduced to being like, which is very, very John Dewey as well, right? This idea, this like progressivism in education. It's this idea that like we are going to let the students drive the conversation or drive the like we're not seeking an end game we're just seeking education and growth as opposed to like being like this is what you need to know you need to multiply three digit by one digit numbers and if you don't know how to do that like you failed but it's like yeah but like they wrote this like heartwarming poem about like friendship and how to like take care of each other and it's like which is like another standard too sure but like what are how are they growing as humans right as opposed to how are they growing on their their standards yeah exactly which i mean i'm very attracted to that i really like that i think that's where i've learned the best and i've been mm-hmm. most excited about education maybe the last point is like back to the original point that you were making or one of the original points is is this too utopian right um like does this presuppose all kinds of resources, all kinds of privilege. Um, is it too pie in the sky? Uh, I hope not. Yeah. You know, I hope we could see this flourish in our current world. And I know we could because, you know, there's people like Adrian Marie Brown out there and, you know, maybe she's not necessarily in Tagore's lineage, but definitely similar ideas are being talked about these days. Yeah, this 
you know, one thing that I didn't hit on too much was like, as we all have like a uh, somewhat working understanding of the Indian caste system, right? Like uh, none of the research I did really hit on it too much. I do know that like um, Tagore went into the, like the rural parts of Bengal and he like um, started some, some education systems there. So he took his like, his belief his like education systems and tried to like get them out into the rural aspects and he also would try like i know that at uh his like family homestead where he was doing this utopian uh project it was very much like um like free of the caste system um but i don't know i like who knows how that really works right like because like when you take something that's so ingrained into like who like we know because we live in a white supremacist society right so we understand like how hard it is to like remove those concepts and like what it really means and like just like the book that i was reading um called ethical visions of educations philosophy in practice by david hansen um taught it like basically just said they ignored the caste system and like people came as people as opposed to people coming from their caste into the school so like there's a huge piece of me that says well are you just like practicing color blindness is there a blindness towards the oppression that's been happened to the people that come to the school before they get there you know and sure once they're there like we can like have this utopian concept of what it's like and that, that can be great and all that, but I'm, it doesn't mean it just disappears. And I feel like that's the issue that we were in, you know, I mean, we've been in for a long time in this country, but like we're moving away from, of this idea of like not recognizing a person's struggle is it worse than, or as bad as like aggressive racism. It's a microaggression in and of, it, of itself, this, this color blindness. Does that feel true? Yeah. It can, I think like, some of the the utopian education systems um, do treat, yeah, do maybe like operate under a color blindness. Um, so I think that's really important to name, like how would the system take on thinking about the social structures of the outside world that will inevitably creep into this utopian system. And um, I think it clearly could. Um, it's maybe just been like some of the utopian systems in the Western world have been created by white people, at least the ones that we've been coming into contact with, um, you know, Mm -hmm. like the unschooling movement of the sixties or seventies as maybe like somewhat of an example. Um, yeah, that, yeah. So even, even a prairie, right? Like he, is like very much ignoring class and d- ignores gender. And that's like a big criticism that bell hooks had of Frary, right? I think, um, the, the gender one, absolutely of bell hooks criticism. I would say that Frary. Right. Deals with is class. I meant race. Sorry. Trying to identify class dynamics in his, yeah. his works. Yep. Good. Keep me honest, Bob. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. I I might have also in, interrupted your flow a little bit. Oh yeah, no. Just um, 
yeah, just be interested to see how, um, you know, these like the balance of structure and non-structure within such a system. I mm-hmm. love the non-structure to go where it will, but it seems like we would need some structures clearly um, to set things up in particular ways and allow for support of, you know, taking on certain things. Like we we want to make sure that we are like a anti-oppressive school and we we don't want to just like leave that up to chance or like if this group of students brings it up you know we don't want like the, the students of color to have to be the ones who are introducing like we want to talk about racism like the school should say that from the start um and that's a structure that's like a given structure at the start so yeah i believe in that but i also um into this idea of forest education or just like emergent strategy uh, mm-hmm. is what I see it these days yeah you know a school i worked at in vermont um they i think were very strongly based in this idea of like uh i think it came out of the unschooling movement but also like um this idea of emergent strategies or like sort of the randomness of nature that it it can provide and like had a really strong creative influence. It feels like um, bridge school basically could have been a, a school that Tagore had like invented. You know what I mean? Um, and nice. it, it, it also felt like one of the issues at the school was like, you'd be like, yeah, like your, your kid just like had this amazing, like, like eye opening experience, like, building dominoes or something like that. Or like we went into the woods and we like, you know, understood like how to like build a cattail mat, which was a definitely a project we did. Um, But then like a lot of times the parents are like, yeah, but like, are they like, are they reading at a third grade level? You know, it's like, yeah, that's also like a huge concern too. Like you can't ignore that. Like you want your student to also be, to be doing both, right. To be meeting these like, amazing having these amazing nature connection experiences while also like making sure they're not like falling behind in like the the capitalist world that we live in and i like understand that as like a concern as of parents right like it's just like both it's both yeah always yeah it is it's always like the question of how to get to this other model with with like not just like totally ignoring the demands of the current model like you have to you have to get into college so you have to be able to do certain certain standards um totally you have to like and it's a disservice to not teach a student how to read like to just spend all day like building you know like i don't know following a rabbit for an entire day is like that's that's fine to do but you also need to like we live in a literate world and like, we can't like think of how much information we've accessed by being literate, you know, like it's literally, you know, millennia of information because we're able to read and that like millions of other brains that we have access to and conversations that we get to have. So like, we can't, you can't ignore because you need to be able to, you like you and I have both been successful in this world because we've been able to, you know, for a lot of reasons, but we've been able to go to college to go to college. You have to be able to do 
all the the normal stuff. <laughs> Quote, I don't know, normal is a bad word, but all the expected standards. Precisely, yeah. So maybe it's just like, is it possible to blend and have a balance? Um, I think so. You know, who knows what the balance, maybe the balance is different at, at different places, but to to start by maybe just injecting more and more Tagore educational philosophy and see where it goes, I think that seems possible. Like, could you, could you integrate some of his stuff into your pedagogy and curriculum? Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I mean, that needs to happen, right? Because right now, and I know it's wintertime in Colorado, so it's hard, but we spend, I think the students have 45 minutes outside a day. Um, and none of that is, it's all for just like, just for play because you got to get those needs met first. Those are the highest and most important needs. But, you know, I can even see this year compared to like previous years, how much less time I'm, I'm allowing to just go outside. So it's a good reminder for me as a teacher to be like, you know, we can, we can go outside and do sound maps. We can go outside and just read. Even we can go outside and just like lie in the grass. And even that is going to provide for unique experiences. And, you know, that's one of the the things that Richard Louvre says in his book, you know, he's like, we don't really know how to be bored anymore. And I feel like sometimes the best part, like dealing with like issues like ADD is the idea that we don't know how to be bored. And I feel like students in my classroom, they don't know how to be bored. And I've, I also recently saw a TikTok video of this teacher who's like, we need to learn, we need to like have 10 minutes a day where she's calling it bored time. And it, I, I would rather do board time outside. It's not always possible, but like mm-hmm. think about what board time, like how necessary that is and like how that can board time in nature is just like, be, it becomes infinite because if you get infinite possibilities to do, to follow that um, emergent strategies, you know, and you can follow that path. Anyways. <sighs> I feel like that's a pretty good stopping point, Bob. Yeah, that's that's we. I, th- I think we could t- talk about this for a long, long time, but that seems like a nice place to stop. Absolutely, with a like a, a piece of what you and others could integrate into their like current practices. Yeah, yeah, and you know, one of my assignments too is to make a like a piece of nature-based curriculum or lesson plan for my day. That's like one of my assignments for this weekend. So I'm going to do that and I'll um, post a, a link to that in the show notes. Um, yeah, I guess too, I had like, I picked like three poems that were like nature-based poems in, um, you know, in line with Tagore because, you know, his view on nature and all that and what that means, but also poetry. Um, is it okay if I read the the Whitman one, Bob, as an ending? Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. Wait, is it written... For Whitman or just by uh, Whitman? It's what, yeah. The three I picked was, you know, I picked the Manifesto of the Mad Farmer Liberation Front by Wendell Berry. I also picked oh, yeah. a, a Tagore one 
but I want to read the Whitman one if that's okay. Okay. Yep. Um, I think it's called the child went forth every day. There was a child went forth every day and the first object he looked upon and received with wonder or pity or love or dread that object he became. And that object became a part of him for the day or a certain part of the day or for many years or stretching cycles of years. The early lilacs became part of this child and grass and white and red morning glories and white and red clover and the song of the Phoebe bird and the March born lambs and the sow's pink faint litter and the mare's fowl full and the cow's calf and the noisy brood of the barnyard or by the mire of the pond side and the fish suspending themselves so curiously below there and the beautiful curious liquid and the water plants with their graceful flat heads all became part of him bob thanks so much for being here thanks for having me dave this was fun love you love you too What's up, Thriving Crew? Bob and Dave want to take a second to thank you for lending them your ears. They also want to thank the artists for making everything a little more beautiful. The intro song is In Heaven by Drake Stafford. Our audio is edited by the consummate and dexterous Nadir Chayetch. Web design by Chris the Mixer Sawyer. And of course, visual art is by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. The outro song to season 8 is Captain Jack by Kimaru Crew. Thanks for listening. Aujourd'hui encore, on chante le refrain du pirate acadien. Des sauvages fabriquent un radeau Un jour voyant au large ce qu'ils croyaient un bateau On le prit à bord et en fit un pirate Commençant la légende de Jack Captain Jack, Captain Jack Est arrivé de loin Aujourd'hui encore on chante le refrain Du pirate acadien